The idea of job security is outdated as a landline. If you haven't been in a search for a while, it's probable you will at some point, by choice or not. Most executives admit to staying way too long or sense what's coming and justify staying anyway. Here, there's another reason. The faulty belief that navigating to what's next will inevitably be worse and has to suck. Screw that. Lauren Greif has spent a lifetime in corporate and executive search, calling bullshit on stale career advice that most still use. This is Career Blast in a Half, the career podcast for executives ready to cut past outdated career advice to fuel your outcomes now. So let's go. Hey, 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 everyone. This is, oh my goodness, this episode three is going to blow your mind. I'm here today with Brendan Kamarasamy. I had the great opportunity of meeting Brendan through Clubhouse. And what I've always found to be most fascinating about his backstory is, I often say this, he's a little bit of a savant. He didn't grow up like most normal kids. I'm going to have him share more. And he stumbled across communications as his passion at a young age and has now turned that into his business master talk. I'm going to have him tell you a little bit about how he stumbled across this and most specifically for you guys out there who are listening, each and every one of you, we're going to talk about questions, 100, 200, and 300 level questions and why those are going to be such a game changer for your interviews and for your networking opportunities. Brenda Kamarasamy, so happy to have you on Career Blast and a Half. Please tell us a little bit more about how you, what age were you when you stumbled across communications and how that all became the Kickstarter for what you're doing now? Absolutely, Lauren. First of all, it's such a pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for having me. And you're right. To your point, communications was an accident for me. It all started when I was in college. I went to business school. And I studied accounting of all things, which is literally the opposite of what I do today. And then I started doing these things called case competitions. Think of it like professional sports, but for nerds. So while other guys my age were playing rugby or football or basketball, I wasn't one of those kids. I did presentations competitively. And that's how I learned how to speak. But then as I got older, I started coaching all the other students on how to communicate ideas. And I realized, Lauren, that wait a second. No one's really sharing free tips on how to communicate ideas effectively. So I started a YouTube channel called Master Talk by my mother's basement. And, and then a few years later, it turned into something I never could have imagined. So you make it sound really linear. Like, oh, I just came across this. But what was going on inside of your head as you were watching all these YouTubers present? I mean, I know you. You spent can't even imagine how many millions of hours you've spent studying from the masters. What was going on in your thought process as you were watching the greats? Let's just say the Seth Goat or the Lewis House or, or any of these other Tony Robbins personas. What was lighting up inside of you? Yeah, it's a great question, Lauren. So for me, the biggest piece is I had a lot of naivete about the industry. I'll take you back to my last semester of college to explain this. So at this point, I'd coached 50, 60 people. 
I had a great job lined up at IBM as a technology consultant. That money was going to change my life. I wasn't thinking of being an entrepreneur. It didn't make any sense to me. But then in my last semester, one of the 60 people I'd coached for free, by the way, I didn't even know you get paid to do this. Somebody just asked me, how did you learn how to speak? And I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, did you hire a coach? Did you do Toastmasters? Did you watch YouTube videos on speaking? I was like, I don't understand any of these things. Because my parents are factory workers, right? Not anymore because I retired my mom recently. But at the time they were. So I wasn't really looking to be spending thousands of dollars on coaches, all that stuff. I just wanted to learn and that's how I did it. But then when somebody sparked that idea, I started watching a lot of these YouTube videos through two different facets. So one was the point you brought up around Seth Godin, around all these great speakers, because I wanted to dissect insights that I felt no one else was sharing. But the other piece to that was I was watching other YouTubers in my field who are generally double the age that I was at currently. So probably in their 50s, 60s. But the way that they were conveying the information about comms was off to me because it was too theoretical. Oh, uh, be yourself, go into this very deep nuance of a PhD dissertation that I went through. And I was really listening to all these videos like, that's not practical. That's how I coach that student. That's how it worked. And there were so many inconsistencies in their logic that I thought to myself, oh, I should probably fill that hole. And that's where I, when I started Master. Okay. So you in true marketing fashion, identified a need and knew that you had the insight and the, the interest to deliver on that. So I love that because that's usually an element of a winning strategy. You see that there is an unmet need and then you go and solve for it. Yay. So what we're going to talk about now is with all of this distillation of information and you look at vocal tonalities, you look at all kinds of pacing, you look at diction, you remove filler words. But the area that I think is most relevant to this audience is this teaching that I have become obsessed with called the 100, 200, and 300 level questions. So I would love you to break down that tier and tell us most specifically why they matter and how you out there, each person who's listening and talking to you, how you can lift this, steal it, use it, repeat it, and practice it. Absolutely, Lauren. So let's start with the general frame, which is the quality of our life is solely determined by the quality of the questions that we ask other people into ourselves. That's by Tony Robbins. But now to break that general principle down to the specific areas that your audience would be more interested in, we fall into two categories. One, which is networking coffees. Whenever we network for a new job opportunity, whenever we want to impress somebody, we want to stand out from the pack, how do we ask higher quality questions that make them go, huh, I need to scratch my head a little bit at this. This is really interesting. I've never went into that angle before. No, and the, yeah, go ahead, I just want to double click on that. So you're saying that the quality of our lives is predicated off of the questions that we ask. I think I said that wrong. I want to hear you say that because I think this is an area that is grossly overlooked. What does that say about you when you ask a great question? For sure, Lauren. Great follow. So 
what I mean by this is when we improve the quality of our questions, it attracts the right people in our life. So for example, let's say we're getting a coffee conversation with a vice president at SVP for a role ruler, but we keep the conversation surface level. So tell me about your day-to-day life. Okay, cool. What advice do you have for me when applying for this role? Awesome. Uh, tell me your story. That's good. At least you're doing the coffee. But the challenge is the person doesn't walk away going, wow, my coffee with Brendan was so good. This person is so good at asking questions. I would love to have this person be in my company. Why? Because quality of questions simply means that this person's really good at critical thinking and this person can solve problems really effectively. So if that person is doing that and the coffee, I can't even imagine how talented they would be if I gave them a job versus the other people who are just asking the basic uh, kind of stale bread questions. Okay. So this is a filter. This is a filter of quality. Fantastic. I love that. And it's really important. I think most people, of course, aren't prepping. And this is a way to not just prep, but to develop a hierarchy of what is the highest quality. So tell us about level one, 100 level questions. Where do they fall in the ranking of quality? Absolutely. And then the second frame, then we'll jump into level one, is really around the job, in, right? So we see so many candidates who go through the process who get the interview. And then the, the person asks at the end, hey, what questions do you have for me? And the person responds with, uh, you know, like, oh, so tell me, like, what's your favorite part about working here? And it's a dud. And that's really the challenge is we remember as human beings the beginning of an experience and the end of an experience, kind of like going to a movie, right? We remember the beginning, but if the ending's terrible, the only thing we think about is how bad the ending was. So that's why it's important for us to improve the quality of the questions we ask. So now let's jump into level one. Level one or 100 level questions is simply questions that you shouldn't be asking other people. These are the people you want, these are the questions you want to avoid because it's what everyone asks others. Example, how was your day? Hey, Lauren, tell me, what's the day in the life of your life? You know, so really bad questions. Uh, what's the best piece of advice you got for me? I don't have all day. I just want to get your best tip. And uh, where do you see the future of this company going? These questions that everyone else is asking. And when we do what everyone else does, we get the same results everyone else does too. So don't, don't ask those. Okay. So these are generics, right? They're throwaways. Everyone's going to do them. 200 level questions. Pick me up the ladder. For sure. So 200 level questions are general questions that we can ask other people, a bunch of people, but they're rarely asked. So it gets people scratching their heads and thinking, oh, I never thought of that one. That one's good. And the reason why this is important is rarity breeds quality, meaning something that we don't see often enough is what breeds quality. That's why I tell all of my executive clients, if you communicate 20% better than your competition, you stand out 100% of the time. So it's not about doing a million different things. It's just asking those one or two questions that stand out. I'll give you an example. When I went through the job process, probably five, six years ago, when I wanted to be a, a management consultant. So I, I went up to a consultant at Oliver Wyman and I sat down with her and I just asked her, hey, what's the biggest misconception about your industry, about your job as a consultant? She said, oh, I really like that question. 
and she scratched her head and she answered it. But I asked that question to every consulting firm I had coffees with and they were all impressed. So that's a general question that surprises people that you can copy paste. I'll give you a couple of others. Another one that I asked when I was a consultant at IBM with a senior partner, I went up to them and said, what's the best piece of advice that you've given another senior executive? So not somebody in general, somebody who's already went up the ladder, done the business, been very successful in their career. And I got a cool answer there. So those are examples of questions. Oh, I'll give you another one off the top of the, of the dome here is when you go up to the CEO of a company, let's say you're entering for a C-suite role and you ask them, what's the best piece of advice you gave the person who used to be in the role that you're interviewing? Mm -hmm. so that's a fun 200 level one too. So in terms of constructing these questions, I'm going to say the 100 level question, I'm not even going to ask you how long that would take this, but it's, I think it's pretty obvious that you shouldn't be doing them at all. 200 level question, what would be a good benchmark for constructing the amount of research, how you get to that place? What's that investment? For sure, Lauren. I would say the investment really falls under the 300 level. What's great about 200 level is they're often questions, and I'm going to say this word to help people because it's the right one. You can plagiarize other people, right? Austin Kleon talks about steal like an artist. So going back to this concept of all the questions I just gave, but FYI, for those of you listening to this, I'm not in the job search process anymore, right? Like I'm not there. So basically the advice is you're already doing the research listening to this podcast. Take one of those three questions and literally use it. One other one I like as well that I'll just give away for that I got from my friend Peter. Whenever he's in a job search, he asks, what, does the, what would the ideal candidate be able to deliver three months, six months, and 12 months into the role? So then that person, the interviewer goes, oh, I guess you would have to do this, this, this. And then the candidate just replies, oh, I can see how I would do this, this, and this. So you're, you're preconditioning the interviewer to go, oh, this person could probably do the job because I just list up. But since nobody else asked the question, you have a huge lead over everyone else. So just steal the questions, essentially, is the advice. Okay. So when I want you to break down the nuts and bolts, right? So I'm going to invest a minimum of a half an hour constructing this question. How do I do it? What are the A, B, Cs? How do I get into the, the mechanics of that? For a 200 level or 300 level? Either and both, right? Because I want to be able to make sure that I differentiate between, okay, so if I'm just going to go for the 300 because overachiever, I want to know how much and how to do it. Absolutely. Learn. So let's cover both. So 200 levels, very simple. The questions that I've mentioned to you today that people can just take, they're from having multiple conversations throughout the course of my life with different groups and pockets of people. So let's say I'm talking with somebody and I go, oh, I like that question. I save it in my document. So one easy way to, to find 200 levels is literally to just type in Google all great candidate questions that people ask others. And you go through the 200 and FYI, 150 of them are really bad. So you have to find the diamonds in the rough. You pull out five or 10 questions in that big list. That's 200 level. 300 level is more interesting. So let me start with the definition, which is 300 level questions just means what are questions that are so good that, and so specific that only the person in front of you has the answer to that question. I call this the holy grail of questions. So what does that look like? That looks like from a research perspective, I'll give you the most common one. 
you're interviewing for a VPSVP role at a company and you're being interviewed by one of the C-suites. CTO, CMO, chief operating officer, doesn't matter. Oftentimes, Lauren, that person has either guested on a podcast like this one, has been on a YouTube channel, they've done a panel, they've done an interview, or they've had some sort of conversation on the company's YouTube channel or website. So what you want to do is in a 300-level question, you listen, so it takes an hour at least to craft one of these, you would listen for 30, 45 minutes to an episode, let's say on a podcast, and you would pre-frame that you did that in the question. Example, yeah. hey, Lauren, I listened to this episode recently about how you talked about X, Y, and Z, and it was really fascinating because I'm passionate about this. But the point that wasn't mentioned in the podcast I'd love for you to elaborate on is why, and that's how you do it. I so appreciate that. So you just said something that I think is going to scare the bejesus out of people, which is, you listen to that podcast for an hour in order to scrape some intel so that you could craft your questions. And so when you are speaking in that, you're asking that question, walk us through what's happening to the listener. What are the bells and whistles that are going off that say, woo, damn, this is a good question. Love that. So there's a lot of great things going on. So let's break all of that. The first thing that you'll often hear if you hit a 300 level question correctly is the person will often smirk. They'll look at you and go, okay, this person's different. So that's the first thing that will happen. If you're not getting that smirk, unless that person's really cold, if you're like entering for a banking role, I don't know, well, that, then you won't see that. But that's the first indication that you've nailed it on the head. The other thing that's happening is they're making assumptions about you in a good way that you don't have to say directly, which is, hey, I'm really interested in this company. I've done my homework. I know more about your company than every other candidate who you're interviewing today combined. So if you don't pick me for the role, you're making a big mistake. So we're not saying that directly, but indirectly, the person sitting across the table is thinking that, okay, wow, Lauren has clearly spent more time and effort than everyone else who is just interviewing for a job. If I'm picking between Lauren and somebody else and I got one role, I'm definitely going to give it to Lauren. The chances of that happening are much higher. So those are the hints that you're giving. And the third hint you're giving is, wow, if Lauren is doing this much homework and I'm not even paying her a dollar, imagine if I gave her a job and she's on my team, she's going to go 10 times deeper because the same level of quality she's delivering before I even hire her, she's going to 10x that when I'm in the business and she's actually talking to the, my entire team and she's looking at how the business is actually run and she's going to ask me the questions that I'm not thinking about and she's going to add a lot of value. That's what I'm Okay. So in a very succinct way, this is the ultimate forecaster of how you will perform in the company. And why I'm bringing this to light and why I wanted to bring this episode to listeners is primarily because a lot of the stinky methodology is to rely on my background, what's in the past, what's on my resume, what's here, my experience set. This framework, the, these different levels of questions forecast you into the future and demonstrate how you are going to perform and importantly, especially at the C-suite level, who you will become. 
who you are as a person, not as a piece of paper. And so I think that this is something I really, really want to reinforce and encourage in a little bit more of a meta way versus I need to write these questions because I want to sound impressive. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about using this as a way to augment and amplify that value of you as a thinker, you as somebody who is embedded in their organization. Nobody's hiring people that doesn't do a little show me, you know me, right? They don't care about you filling a role. They want to understand what you're going to do as far as impacting the team, the industry, the competition. And so I think that these are all so indicative of a much higher and more valuable level of what you're there to do on a much, much more global level. So I want to find out from, from you, Brendan, I'm going to ask you a 300 level question. All right. I'm so excited to turn the tables around. So growing up, you mentioned that your parents were factory workers. You've also mentioned that the idea of you becoming an entrepreneur and you coaching was the farthest thing from your mind because you had, air quotes, a success script. You had this idea of what your future would look like. When did you find out that that script was not designed for your success? What a beautiful 300-level question, Lauren. Approved. So let me start there. And in terms of the answer to the question, it was the day that I realized time was more important than money. And that was after my first year of my corporate job. So I'd worked at IBM, I was doing well, but most of the money that I was making was actually paying off my family's debt. We were probably 20, 30 grand in debt. So I was taking all of the money I was making, every paycheck, and just paying that off. But then when it all fell to zero and all of the sweat of my last kind of five, seven years was like, I had all these 30 coffees to get into one of these consulting firms. I did all these case competitions to get this job. And then I realized, contrary to my parents' belief, that groceries are actually not that expensive. Because my parents would always tell me, this is expensive, this is expensive, this is expensive. But I was like, well, if I, if I live with my mom and my sister, and I'm making 75, 80 grand a year, and I live in Montreal, where our mortgage is like 700 bucks a month, because we've had the home for so long, I was like, oh, wait a second. Money is not the solution, because I'm already doing well. There's so much surplus here. So is the game now to just spend my time and become a partner at this company and make half a mil? Is that really the success script? And it was in that moment, Lauren, that I realized, wait a second, I can make more money, but I can't get my 20s back. So what am I going to do for the rest of my life? Is this the holy? And then my script changed. And then the other piece was a lot of series of fortunate luck and events where I met my business partner, Vomsi, and he helped me realize that the small hobby that I had in my basement, Master Talk, which was I thought was a joke, frankly, actually could turn into a global movement where I could teach executives and CEOs how to speak and democratize, more importantly, this information for the world. And that was the moment where the script changed, probably a year into my corporate. Mm. So whether you're wanting to stay in corporate, whether you want to become an entrepreneur, what piece of advice would you share to the audience with respect to getting to their level of alignment 
because you clearly had some kind of wake up call or, you know, realignment in terms of your thinking process. What would you say to them? Absolutely, Laura. You know, for me, the advice for anyone who wants to become an entrepreneur is realize that the market doesn't have any emotion, right? The market is the market. That is the demand. So even if you're great in corporate, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll be great in entrepreneurship. So there's a few tests that I always like to bring up to see if someone can really be an entrepreneur. Because I was really surprised that I had the chops to even do this. Because I always thought I wanted to be a, a corporate guy. So here, here are the tests in retrospect now. Number one is, do you already have a product where you've made some amount of money? It's different if you want to build a tech startup. But for most businesses that aren't tech startups, you could usually build an MVP and see if somebody's willing to buy it while you're still working your corporate job. I call this side hustling comfortably, which was the case for me. And you were actually one of those people, right, that bought into me very early in my career before the whole thing exploded and everything went crazy, is you bought into the service when I was still in corporate. So it was obvious that there was a market demand for what I was doing. So that's the one thing. I'd probably replaced 40% of my income before I'd quit my job. That's one. The second thing is I was really good at managing money. And what I always tell people is if you can't save a six to 12 month emergency fund before you quit and they go, oh, I just want to burn all the ships. That's bad because you're bringing those habits into business. Whatever we have in our personal life is a projection of what we'll bring in the business. So if we can't save money effectively and practically, I had like a nine month emergency fund because I was the only breadwinner in my family and I still am up until in like six months that will change from today's recording. But for the last two years, I've been the only breadwinner. So saving that nine-month emergency fund gave me a lot of leeway when I started running out of money and I made the business work with the time, the extra time I bought myself. And the third piece is have a clear strategy. I had a very clear execution plan the day after I'd leave corporate. I was like, okay, I'm going to post daily on, on LinkedIn. I'm going to do this outreach. I'm going to do these trainings. And I was able to replace all my income probably 90 days of leaving corporate. And that's really the idea. Wow. And so what would you say also on the flip side to somebody that wants to stay in corporate? How do they assess their success group? Because let's face it, not everybody is, to your point, cut out to do this, right? I mean, it's, it's got its challenges. And there are many, many, many people I know, respect, love, are, are like, you know, it's just not for me. I, I really thrive in these kinds of environments. So what what would you say to them about their success trip based off of a lot of the communications and a lot of the ways that you have imparted that people can stand apart within that organization? For sure, Lauren. You know, for me, it comes down to two things. One is life advice and one is career advice. So let me start with life advice. I've always believed that the number one purpose of money is to buy ourselves time. So if you're able to save a lot of money, let's say you're an AWS executive, you're doing half a million dollars a year, you're starting your company, I mean, your corporate career, you're making 150. If you're saving a lot of that money, what happens is you're buying yourself time for the future version of who you could be. So even if you don't want to become an entrepreneur now, maybe in 20 years, you might wake up and say, I really like selling cupcakes. You never know what's going to happen. If you had told me 10 years ago, or even not even 10 years ago, let's make this even more practical, seven years ago when I was 19, and you had said, hey, Brent, you're going to get your dream job at PricewaterhouseCoopers and IBM. And then, by the way, not only are you going to go achieve the impossible and get the job, then you're going to quit it. And I was like, to do what? To work at a bigger company? No, no, to start a YouTube channel and to coach people for money. I was like, okay, buddy. Like, uh, you sound a little crazy to me, so just don't talk to me. That's what That would have been my 
process. So life changes. So I always say, always build leverage in your life. This is what I teach my family, build leverage, because you never know if that next opportunity comes, you'll have the money and the freedom to unlock your golden handcuffs and just pursue whatever that opportunity. <laughs> in terms of those of you who want to be in a career, my advice, and which I love, by the way, my advice is don't settle for the title and the job that you have right now in your company because it's safe. You want to still dream as big as an entrepreneur, but this time your goal is if I could work for any company in the world in any position, what would that dream job look like? And it would be like chief brand officer at this brand because I'd love to work. They'd be so sick and I could change the brand. And I'd love the same way we vision our businesses, I'd love for people to do this with their careers too. And then spend 15 minutes every week just watching that person in that role give an interview, do a podcast. So we're changing our mindset around I could be that guy or that gal someday. That's golden. I I want everybody to embrace this idea of that future self in that role because and dedicate time around it. That's probably the most important thing because it's fine to have it be a fleeting thought, but to be able to put those those seeds in the ground. Brenda Kamarasamy, you are the light of my life. And sorry, I'm hoffing. We can find you on LinkedIn and where else? Absolutely. If you could spell my name, you could find me on LinkedIn, but usually the two easiest places to go is YouTube, which is just master talk in one word. And the other piece to keep in touch is I do a free workshop on communication where it's live, it's over Zoom. Eight-year-olds come to that call. CEOs of billion-dollar companies come to that call. Everyone's invited. So if you want to jump to that, go to rockstarcommunicator.com. And those workshops are incredible. Last question before we go. You've got a big-ass billboard in the middle of Times Square. What does it say? It says, be insane or be the same, Warren. If you want to be like everyone else, that's totally fine. But if you want to do something special, amazing, purposeful with your life, you need to realize that people who do great things with their life are often crazy. Don't you find it odd, Lauren, that you're having a conversation with a guy who at the age of 22 started a YouTube channel, not on pranks or skits or love or some, what music, what are the kids are into these days? He started a YouTube channel, executive communication tips. And then he built a successful practice training high-level CEOs and execs on that. Yet, he's too scared to drive his car. He bought it, but his sister drives it for him. He's in the top 1% of all listeners on Spotify for Justin Bieber, and he can karaoke in eight different languages. How does any of this make any sense at all, Lauren? And that, my friend, is the point. When every decision in your life makes sense to the only person that it should, which is you, you're probably making the right decisions. Brian, thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for being here today. Thank you, dearest, dearest, dearest listener. And thank you, Brendan Kamarasamy. Like I said, you're the love of my life. Thanks, Lauren. Such a treat. Thank you for joining today. We appreciate your listening ears. Big time. We ask this. Use these tools. Not tomorrow. Right now. And share them by spreading the love leaving us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss the next career blast in a half. Most of all, thank you for you.